Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. And we went back, Lauren, who's my uh, data scientist on our team, she went back through every interview, all of our transcripts and notes, looking for any evidence of prima donna behavior. And we just couldn't find it. They weren't bullies. They weren't prima donnas. These were these superstars. Everyone on the team knew who they were. Their managers knew exactly who these kind of standout clutch players were, but they were team players. So they weren't shy. It wasn't like they were wallflowers, like, well, you know, I'll just sort of be on the sidelines. They're making this enormous impact, but it's not about them. It's about the work. And, and I think this is one of the big ahas for me in this work is like we do our best work and we make our biggest impact where we feel our greatest sense of joy, our greatest fulfillment. We have our greatest success when it's not about us. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Liz, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Oh, I'm excited to be here. We have a lot to talk about. We have a ton to talk about. You are back here for a second time. And anytime we have somebody back for a second time, uh, to me, it always says a whole hell of a lot about how fabulous they were the first time. Uh, you have a new book out called Impact Players, which I absolutely loved, all of which we will get into. Uh, but before we start, last time I asked you about your very first job. Um, and this time I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping and influencing the choices that you ended up making throughout your life and your career? Oh, wow. It absolutely shaped uh, my choices and, and and not just my choices, my orientation to that. So I am the daughter of an educator. My mom was a teacher and a principal. And there's some obvious connection there. I watched my mom, who is just this really incredible educator. Um, and I think it pulled in me like this desire to teach and to coach and and to lead. And then I'm also the daughter of a donut maker. And so my dad, he had, he actually started, well, he ran a, a Winchell's franchise. So I have like sugar in my blood. Like it's <laughs> just, like, I get around a donut and like, I'm like, yes, this is my heritage. This is my destiny. You know, uh, I love donuts. And I worked for my dad starting at 13 
even to the point where I was, um, his donut shop was right across from what, where Apple's headquarters are now. So in Cupertino, California. And, you know, I just grew up working in the donut shop and um, was working there once. So it was a weeknight, maybe 930 at night alone. But this is like my dad's donut shop. And I'm working alone and was robbed at gunpoint. And I remember like, this dilemma. Like, what do I do? Like, do I just give them the money? This is like my family's, this is like our, our earnings. This is my, you know, my dad's livelihood. And, um, I gave him the money, (laughs) but I remember having to call my dad and saying, dad, I think I made the right decision, but I feel so bad, like having let you down. Um, but anyway, so like I'm the daughter of a donut maker and, um, you know, in other ways of looking at it, I'm kind of also the daughter of a multiplier mom and a diminisher dad. And my dad was grumpy and gruff. And I don't know if it was because he was making donuts in the middle of the night, seven days a week, you know, 365 days a year or, or what it was, but he was kind of uh, hard on people. And he was, you know, he kind of vacillated between like bossy, know it all, tell you what to do, tell you if, you know, you didn't do it this way, you were going to be a failure in life. And then, you know, kind of sullen and withdrawn. And, you know, he was sort of hard to live with. And, you know, my other people kind of found him to be, oh, it means way too strong of a word. And, and, you know, my dad was not abusive or in any way. He was just hard to interact with. And it was very much a a defining thing for me because... Like as a young girl, I would look at that and say, you know, no, you know what? He's not, he's not unkind. It's that life. I could see life had been unkind to him and, you know, he's not disappointed in me. He's disappointed in life. And like these things that other people think might be hurtful, you know, just sort of like aggressive things like, well, you're going to fail at that if, you know, you don't do X, Y, Z. I'm like, no, he's, he's trying to keep people from failing. So working, like growing up with my dad helped me see the world. in I think a very different way than maybe someone who, who had a more, I don't know, a conducive kind of um, parental model or environment. And I just learned to see, oh, I don't know, in the cracks in the cracks of human nature and in the cracks of relationships and intentions. And, you know, so later when I got to Oracle and, you know, got thrown into management at an early age and, you know, Oracle was a pretty tough place. People say, Oh, you know, don't they eat? They're young there. And I'm like, and they're like, Oh, isn't Larry Ellison really tough? Isn't he hard to work for? I'm like, are you kidding me? Have you met my dad? Like, you know, I've, I've been training my whole life for this moment. And, I think I gained a couple things from that. One was like being able to see the different the difference between people's best intentions and their actual impact on others. And and it really helped me as a leader and working with other leaders and coaching leaders and the the writing and teaching I've done on leadership. And I think the other thing it taught me was how to just stand up for myself because my dad and I had this amazing relationship. And it started early when, I don't know, I think I just empathized with how life had disappointed him. But, 
I also didn't cower. I was just like, no, dad, that's not how we're going to do things. And no, like I, you know, I appreciate your concern, but, and I just started advocating for, for myself really early on in life. And he responded in such delightful ways. And my dad was kind of my biggest fan. And I think it really shaped me, shaped how I, it shaped the work I do and how I work very much so. That maybe that was more than you were asking. No, 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 no. There's I, because you know, like to me, that raises so many other questions. Uh, you know, it, like that, that's at this point, I've realized my, my tendency is usually ask three questions and one when somebody answers one question. So I, the first thing I wonder is, you know, you have this contrast of a mother who is a principal and a brilliant educator, and then and your dad who basically owns a Winchell's franchise, but in some ways, you know, even though he's the owner, that is kind of considered you know blue collar work. Um, and then layer on top of that, growing up in Cupertino, which you and I both know is this bizarre bubble of privilege. Like my cousin was very adamant that her son leave California to go to college because she said that the valley is not an accurate representation of what the rest of this country is like. And I remember my mentor, Greg, when he went around and you know visited all 50 states, he said people who live on the coast have a warped perception of what America is really like. And so I wonder, first, how you think about that whole idea of, of privilege when you were brought up in the environment that you were. And now you live in Palo Alto, you know, from Stanford, you teach at Stanford. So that's the first question. Um, the second, you know, what was it that your mother taught you about the value of education? And then third, how did the experience that you had with your parents influence you as a parent? Oh my goodness. That's, these are like uh, unfairly complex and comprehensive questions. <laughs> this is why we can't, that's why I needed an hour. <laughs> oh my goodness. So yeah, let's talk about privilege. Um, I mean, I grew up in a very middle-class neighborhood and family. The high school I went to was, I think back in the seventies, which was before I went there, it was like listed on like the state of California's top drug abusing high school. So like, this was not like Ivy league college prep that I, I went to. Um, but you know, living in this Bay area is like this land of rich opportunity. And I knew growing up, I lived in a weird place because my dad, after he, um, had his stint, oh, I don't know, more than a decade with, um, running this donut franchise, he went into real estate and commercial real estate as a salesman. And he he and I used to drive around and I would look at the names of buildings like Symantec or, you know, um, Intel and like all of these names. I'm like, what is this language that this area speaks? Because everything was named out of these sort of cyber kind of tech names. And and it wasn't until I went out of state, out of college, I'm like, oh yeah, this is different. And in raising my own children, you know, we've tried to take our children around the world and, you know, into the developing world. And one of the things we say is like Menlo Park, where we live, is is not normal. And the experiences you're getting here are, are wonderful, but it's not normal. And it wasn't until my first daughter went off to college two states away and she she called, it was one of our, our calls, um, maybe a month or two into college. And she said, mom, I just figured something out. I'm like, what's that? And she goes, mom, I think it's, she was still calling me mommy at that point. Mommy, we're rich. And 
I just started to laugh because I don't know, in this area, we are not rich. (laughs) But, you know, like she was going to birthday parties with like friends whose parents had private jets who were flying them up to Napa for like, you know, slumber parties. And and so she kind of always thought we were a little on the poor side. And, and she's like, Mom, we're rich because like the girls on my floor, like they're working jobs to pay for their tuition and their parents are taking out loans. And it was just this eye-opening experience for her. And, um, you know, my hope is that we, we continue to have those eye-opening experiences and even like, oh man, the problems that I'm dealing with right now, these are, these are problems of luxury. These are not problems of scarcity and, and depravity. And I don't know, to maintain a sensitivity to it, but I, I, I did not grow up rich. Um, but the barrier is, is rich in opportunity, and I landed here. And you know, sometimes people read my bio and the companies that we consult for, and they're like, "Get a load of this list." You know, it's like um, the royalty of of Silicon Valley and tech is one of the best brands in the world. I'm like, yeah, but that's not saying anything really about me. It's saying everything about where I live. These are just the companies in the neighborhood. And and so, yes, there is this wealth of opportunity. And I've been really lucky to spend my career here and to grow up here. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. 
My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, let's talk briefly about education. I mean, with a mother as an educator and somebody who teaches at one of the most elite universities in the world, uh, and this is something I seem to want to ask Not as a regular faculty. I want to make sure. Like, I'm a guest faculty there at Stanford and at BYU, both places I I teach periodically. So I guess, you know, uh, you know, I mean, and then you have a daughter who is apparently at the same school that I am. I wonder, you know, what your mother taught you about the value of education, but also how you think about sort of the role that education should play in the lives of young people uh, today. Because I, I think the thing that really struck me, which I think will make a perfect segue into impact players, was that the way that we're educated, particularly in elite institutions, is virtually the opposite of everything that you talk about in this book. Because in these elite institutions, you have the most ambitious, self-motivated, and often self-interested people imaginable. I mean, I know this because I was in one of those environments. And the pro of that, of course, is you're surrounded by people who hold you to higher standards. The downside, of course, is that you basically measure yourself against that benchmark in my mind. Um, and, you know, now you have sort of the situation where people are coming out with boatloads of student loan debt, uh, you know, and like I said, as, as I was reflecting on the book, I almost wondered, I was like, would I have written this off as a bunch of bullshit because my ego was so big when I was, you know, a, a student at Berkeley? Mm. Oh, well, you know, this is such a fun thing for me to talk about, but I have to admit, like, there's part of me that wants to steer away from this conversation because, Shreena, I have to confess that when I talk, see, I get a little wobbly in my voice just there. Like, I have, to me, education and formal education and graduate level education and just getting an education is kind of a, almost like a sacred topic. And I get teary when I talk about it. So, like, when I go to graduations, I cry. When people, when young people tell me about their college application process, like I start to tear up. It embarrasses my children. And when I sit down to begin, I have four, you know, children and, you know, they're all like in or out of college right now. And every time I, I, I would sit down to talk to them about their thoughts about college, I would get teary and they're like, mom, what is wrong with you? Cause I'm not an emotional person. Like I don't tear up about things, but but this idea that people investing in their own education or people who have 
have resources, making investments in young people's education just to me is um, is what life's all about. And, you know, I guess growing up the daughter of an educator, I saw my mom who got married at a young age, started having children at a young age, put college on hold. And then when we were off at school, she went back to San Jose State where you know we lived in San Jose and she got her bachelor's degree. She got her master's degree. She became a teacher. I think she went and got a second master's degree. So I, like my images growing up were my mom locked in my bedroom. I got kicked out of my bedroom and she was there with her typewriter writing her, her master's thesis. And um, I self-funded my education. It was kind of, I told you I had sort of a tough dad and my dad was like, okay, your mother and I can afford to send you to college, but we're not going to because, you know, my parents didn't pay for me to go to college, so you shouldn't either. Now, I'm not sure that they really could have afforded that, but, you know, I went to a private school, fortunately, with subsidized tuition and, you know, funded six years of college 100% on my own, not just tuition, books, room and board, just like everything on my own. And like, I don't know, it was like, like because th- this is something that is worth our time. And, you know, the school I went to, uh, BYU, there's, uh, as you enter campus, there's this massive sign and it says, enter to learn, go forth to serve. And I think it really is this orientation that I came out of school with, which is school is not, it's not a trade um grounds. Like if you have the privilege of going to college, like it is a chance not to learn about things or to come out with skills and, you know, maximize your starting. Sorry. It's a chance for you to learn how to think. I can't really remember much of what I learned in college, but I remember professors who, who taught me how to think. And, you know, all of the dear mentors that I've had, CK Prahalad at the University of Michigan, you know, when he passed in 2010, I thought, oh, like, I can't do any great thinking because CK, like, the most brilliant thinker I ever knew has passed. And I'm like, you know, he taught you how to think, how to question, how to unearth the assumptions that sit underneath our thoughts and our behaviors and and how to, like, look at your assumptions and evaluate that. And And to me, this is the value of the education. And, you know, I would always tell my kids, oh, mom, like, I can't believe I have to learn all this stupid stuff. Like, I'm never going to use trigonometry in, in my life. And I'm like, yeah, because it doesn't matter what you're learning. It's that you're teaching. You're learning how to think mm-hmm. and you're learning how to analyze and how to memorize and how to recall. And and so I don't know. I could I could go on. I don't know that that would be useful. But yeah. to me, it's. An education is about how to think, not what, not a body of knowledge. Yeah. Well, you know, I think the reason that I thought, you know, education would be a perfect sort of jump off point for impact players was it just kind of, you know, when I looked at, you know, how recruiting was done and how I acted at my first job and the things I valued at my first job, I thought to myself, nobody trains us at that age to be become impact players. Like that's not how mm. most of us are trained. So first question, you know, what is it that prompted you to want to write this book as sort of the natural follow-up to the previous one? Mm. Well, this book is really, so, okay, boy, let me back up. So my very first book was called Multipliers and it was about leaders who bring out the best in others, leaders who use our intelligence in a way that other people can be really intelligent. And, you know, it was came out of my experience coming out of college, joining Oracle, where they hired from 
all the Ivy League schools, all the top tech schools, MIT, Caltech, Georgia Tech, Berkeley, you know, all these amazing schools. So I found my and they they hired for achievement, intelligence, and then like the third thing was like personality, nice. So they wanted smart, driven, nice people. And, you know, having worked there 17 years, they got smart and and driven down almost all the time. The nice was a little bit questionable. (laughs) If they compromised on one, like I know which one they compromised on, particularly in the early days at Oracle. And, And I found myself working around all these brilliant people. And I didn't have a sense of imposter syndrome, like, gee, I don't belong here. It was more like man, am I lucky to work here? Like, look at all these smart people. But then I'm seeing a bunch of leaders who don't know what they're doing. They're so smart themselves that they don't need the intelligence of the people on their team. They don't see it, or maybe they're threatened by it. And I ended up calling them diminishing leaders. So that book was about leaders who either diminish the intelligence and contribution of people around them or or multiply or magnify that. And so it was all around how do you create a team or an environment where smart people can be really smart? And and I started to see like when we get to show up at work and use all of our talent and be big, play big, big ideas and to make an impact and do work that matters, like it's exhilarating. It's thrilling. And and work doesn't feel like work. I mean, you can even put in a ton of hours and it doesn't feel that way because you're making a difference. Like, and I've learned this stunning leadership that people all around the world and man, Trini, this, this crosses continents, it crosses industries, is that people want to contribute fully. Like, I can't find people who like the lazy route. Like, I've, I've encountered lots of people who have learned it and do it as a coping mechanism, but no one who likes it. And what's it like? We want to contribute fully. So this book, Impact Players, is looking at the contributor side of that proposition. Like, and it like probably the moment that it came into clarity for me was I was teaching this workshop up at Salesforce and oh, I don't know, midway through it, uh, one of the engineering managers, he like raises his hand. He's got something to say. He's like, yeah, I get it. Like, I want to be a multiplier leader. Like, I understand I need to like bring the right mindsets and practices in leading my team, but like you can't multiply zero. I'm like, what? You can't multiply zero? What does that mean? And I'm like trying to figure out like, what's his assumption underneath that comment? Is he assuming that the people on his team are a bunch of zeros? Like, yeah, I got dummies. Like, this is great if you're, you know, managing a team of like brilliant people, but I got nothing over here. And it's not what he meant when he explained it. It was, you know, I need to bring the right assumptions and practices, but so do the people who work for me. Like, you know, here I'm out there teaching leaders how to ask good questions and let other people find answers. Well, what happens when the leader asks good questions, but other people are like, hmm, I don't got anything for you. And and so what I'm trying to do is answer this question, how do we create environments where people can bring all of their intelligence and creativity and energy and talent and do work that matters and do work that is impactful? And so this is looking at what the contributors 
their part of this and what the people who are having inordinately high impact are doing differently than everyone else and how much of this is learnable and can we all kind of think and operate like what I call an impact player. I want to tell you about a new podcast. Daring leaders are provocative, bold, and sometimes downright eccentric. What happens when those leaders harness their passion to affect change in their industry or profession? They become redefiners. And I'm excited to introduce this brand new leadership podcast to you called Redefiners. The episodes feature conversations with notable leaders and change makers from across industries and around the world, including award-winning producer Deborah Martin Chase, EVP of football operations for the NFL, Troy Vincent, and renowned businessman, chairman, and author Jim Hageman Snabe. Conversations that matter, inspiration for us all. Whether you're kicking off your career, listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Well, I mean, you know, I think that there are a couple of things that really struck me in the opening of the book. Um, Let's start with this one, you know, which is the very beginning of the book. You say, please know that virtually every one of the impact players profiled in these pages is uncomfortable with the praise they received and acknowledges colleagues who contributed to each win. They've graciously allowed me to shine the spotlight on them. And that kind of baffled me as to, you know, because I think we live in a sort of egocentric society where everybody's trying to get attention on social media for their work. And that was so different than, you know, anything that I'd I'd seen uh, in terms of people who are extraordinary. And then you contrast them with contributors who you say, you know, contributors see themselves as position holders. They do the work they're given and stay within the boundaries of their role, but risk becoming so myopic, they lose sight of the overall strategy and veer off the agenda. Uh, So what is it that, that, you know, prompts that sort of discomfort with being recognized and why is that so important? So this was one one of the places where I was delightfully wrong. Um, That's one of my favorite parts of doing research is like where you have opinions, strong opinions, even that turn out to not be true. And so I know that we're, you know, so the essence of my research was interviewing 170 managers from nine top employers and asking those managers to identify someone who was an impact player, someone that we ended up calling a contributor, like, you know, steady, typical, ordinary. And then someone who's an under contributor. And probably the most important thing to understand about this research is that all three types of people we asked managers to identify and then analyze with us were people who were, as a baseline, smart, talented, and hardworking. So, so these are capable, smart people. So we're not contrasting like, you know, top performers and like low performers, people without a lot of driver capability. Um, and one of the things I expected is that these impact players would be superstars and some of them would be kind of, oh, I don't know, in the tech world, you often call them elephant hunters, like these superstar salespeople or these like 10x programmer types. And I expected a few of them to be kind of Star-like, and not a single one of them. And we went back, Lauren, who's my uh, data scientist on our team, she went back through every interview, all of our transcripts and notes, looking for any evidence of prima donna behavior. And we just couldn't find it. They weren't bullies. They weren't prima donnas. These were these superstars. Everyone on the team knew who they were. Their managers knew exactly who these kind of standout clutch players were but they were team players. So they weren't shy. It wasn't like they were wallflowers, like, well, you know, I'll just sort of be on the sidelines. They're making this enormous impact, but it's not about them. It's about 
the work. And, and I think this is one of the big ahas for me in this work is like we do our best work and we make our biggest impact where we feel our greatest sense of joy, our greatest fulfillment. We have our greatest success when it's not about us. And, you know, it's when we, you know, so these are people who don't come into an organization like I did. I came into Oracle like, man, I want to want to do something with management training. I want to like teach people how to be good managers. I'd come out of a grad school and had done an internship in this area. And I was sort of looking for a place where I could do my thing. And, you know, I'm interviewing for a job inside the company about a year into my time at Oracle. And I'm seeing this opportunity that I can kind of make a pitch for Oracle needs management training and like, pick me. I'm I'm the girl for this job. Like I've got energy for this. I'll do this in my spare time. And I'm making my pitch in the interview to the VP and, and Bob, he's, he says to me, he's like, Liz, that's great. Like, we think you're great, but your boss has a different problem. And this was this new hire training group that I was joining. And, you know, it was sort of the company's um, like the buds of their corporate university He's like, we have, we have a different problem. We've got to figure out how to get 2,000 new hire technologists up to speed in Oracle technology. And what would be great is if you could help your boss solve that problem, which wasn't what I wanted to do. I wanted to teach leadership. And he wants me to now teach programming to a bunch of nerds. <laughs> <laughs> not my gig, not my thing, you know, and like, oh, you don't see me and my passion. And i you know, Bob probably doesn't even remember saying it necessarily because it was polite. He was just saying, like, let me let me put a spotlight on the problem. And then I, I, I was just mature enough to understand that what he was saying to me were sort of two things. Number one, this is what's important. And number two, like, Liz, hey, how about you make yourself useful instead of making yourself important? And I was like, oh, that's not what I want to do. It's not the job I want, but it, it is clearly the job that needs to be done. So I will do this, not because I want to, but because I want, because I do want to do important work. And even if it's not the work I want to do, I want to make a difference. And if this is like what matters, I'm going to I'm going to work on what matters. And it is this orientation we see in these impact players is they bring incredible talent and drive and passion to their work, but they work on what matters to the people they work for, whether it's a client, a boss, a stakeholder, a team. And there's like a subordination in it, but in support, not subordinating as in, you know, yes, ma'am, anything you say. But when they are willing to serve where they're needed, they become valuable and influential and impactful. And it's not like they live their whole career sort of just doing what is deemed important to others. They like start to build influence and they get to now have a say in the agenda. Like, oh, well, here's what I think we need to do. And their voice is heard bigger and louder and and they're soon setting the agenda. So it's not like, hey, you know, let people run all over you. 
stay in the background. It's just work where there's momentum and heat. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombus. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com/acast and use code acast for 20% off your first purchase. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Well, you know, it's funny because I, I read that and it made me really think about a lot of my jobs where I didn't thrive. And at this, so the the question that you know kind of arose for me as I was reading through that uh, was something that you and I were talking about before we hit record, which is this idea of matching talent and environment, where if you mismatch talent and environment, 
you know, you inevitably get piss poor performance, which leads to performance improvement plans, which doesn't improve performance and just prevents wrongful termination suits. So I, I, you know, now that I'm running a company as a CEO, I completely agree with what you're saying. And at the same time, like, you know, one of the things I wonder is, is, you know, how does that play a role when you put somebody in the wrong job? Does that even come into consideration? Hmm. Or the wrong environment. Yeah. So early in my career, I kind of got lucky and I joined Oracle and they were the kind of place where it was growing fast enough and they had hired people who were capable, extremely capable and driven. So they're just kind of like, uh, yeah, here's something that needs to be done. Go. And so it very much appealed to the sense of like being self-directed and self-driven and, you know, kind of ignoring a few of the rules and your you know job boundaries were like mere suggestions And I thrived in this environment. Now, my husband, who graduated at the same time that I did, he took a job for a Japanese company, Kanimatsu Gosho, that had this like 150-year-old tradition and Japanese culture. And one day we were talking and we both laughed because we realized that if I worked at his company, I would have gotten fired. And if he worked at my company, he probably would have gotten fired too. And, And so it's... You know, we definitely see these certain characteristics that are common in impact players across different industries. But, you know, if you really want to do work that matters and you want to contribute in very meaningful ways, you have to find out what matters here. Like you have to you have to decode the unwritten rules that says, here's what we value. Here's what's important. Like, here's the right work to do. And here's the right way to do it. Like you have to be really tuned into the culture. So I guess really what you're saying is somebody could be an impact player in one environment and end up being a contributor or underperformer in another. Yeah. Yeah. And I do think there are some universals. And that's, you know, that's what I've tried to capture in this book, which is here are the things that we find common across a number of different industries and companies. And these are people who tend to be successful. And, you know, I know you've had your experience with this, Rini, where it's like bringing someone in from a totally different industry, but has the right way of thinking about problems. And they can be transplanted and dropped in a very different environment and still be one of these impact players. Yeah. Like I said, we hired a a civil engineer to be our community manager. And I told her, I was like, if you can build a bridge, you can build a community. Uh, So the next piece of this that you talk about is what you call step up and step back. And you say when it's clear that something needs to be done, but it's unclear who's in charge, impact players step up and lead. And, you know, you and I were talking about this, that one of the key things I look for when I hire somebody who is a freelancer or anybody else is the ability to navigate ambiguity. And that's just the nature of a startup. Like I saw it firsthand with my audio engineer. There are days when I'll screw something up uh, and we air an episode every Monday or Wednesday. The only thing I ever hear from him is, hey, you screwed something up in the editorial calendar, so I picked another episode and aired it. I never told him to do that. He just does it. Yeah. You know, one of the um, one of the things we find is that these impact players, they don't wait to initiate. Like, they're in some ways um, impolite. Like, in sort of a large sense, they, like, don't wait for an invitation to a party. 
to kind of show up. Now, I mean that metaphorically. Um, one of my favorite parts of the research, and Srini, the way I do research is I, I kind of like approach it very logically. I structure what are the questions I'm trying to answer? What are the things I have to find answers for? How am I going to study it? How am I going to measure it? And then with every research project I've done, I always add something to it, which is like, I just want this part for fun. Like, I just want to know this personally. And for this project, I decided to ask 170 managers, in addition to all the things we needed to know to build this profile of what kind of someone working in an ordinary contributor mindset versus an impact player mindset looks like, I asked these managers, what is it that people do who work for you that you absolutely hate? And they're like, oh, nothing. (laughs) And, And I'm like, no, I know there's something there. And they're like, really? You just want me to like tell you what I hate, all my pet peeves? I'm like, yeah, I actually do. And so I got this really clear view of what leaders, um, what really bugs them and what people do that really erodes that person's credibility in their mind. But I also asked them, what is it that people do that you absolutely love, like crazy love? Like what makes your job easy and delightful? And here's the thing, um, top of the list, of things that bosses hate is when people bring them problems without solutions. Like when people are just like dropping the red, the, you know, the dead wrap on their doorstep, like, Hey, here's a problem. There you go. Number one thing that bosses love and that builds credibility is doing things without being asked. Yeah. You know, people are like, well, I don't know. I don't know if I should like just do that. They didn't ask me to do that. And, and I think one of the things I've learned and one of the messages I have for people is like, Bosses don't like being bossy. They don't like having to tell people what to do. Um, you know, they they love it when people do things without being asked. Number two, anticipate problems and have a plan to solve them. Help your teammates. Um, do a little extra. Be curious. Ask good questions. Like they want people to be self-starting. Mm-hmm. Now, I know there's somebody listening who's saying, not my boss. <laughs> like, I show a little bit of initiative and I get my hand slapped. And yes, there are those anomalies and you probably know it if you've got one of those. But for the most part, like leaders, clients want you to to do things before you've been asked to do them. It's funny you say that because I think as I was telling you before I hit record, the first thing I usually tell somebody when I'm thinking about working with them is one, you need to assume that I report to you, not the other way around. Um, I don't want to tell you what to do. I need you to tell me what to do when you need me. Beyond that, ideally, you can manage yourself. And Sam Altman actually talked about this in his Startup Schools podcast. He said there's one common trait they saw between all the successful uh, Y Combinator founders. Every time they met with them, they had gotten new things done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and there was this around these impact players, there was something that we came to call a performance guarantee. And what that was, and it was something really fun that we found in the data, is that there were a, a bunch of positive behaviors that were exhibited by both contributors and impact players. But there was a certain set of things that were always done by impact players, meaning they they not they don't do it most of the time. They do it all the time. And before I even tell you what these are, like I want us to stop and pause. Like, what would be the things like that someone always, always, always does this that makes it possible for you to see that person as like a no look past person? 
which is like, you know what? I know if I need to pass the ball, I don't even have to look at them. They're, they know the play. They're going to be in position. I can hand it off to them. What are the things that people do that would allow you to, as NASA puts it, fire and forget? Yeah. They don't mean fire people and forget about them. They mean fire off a request and then you can forget about it. Like you don't even have to follow up. In fact, the following up, I'm going to check my list here. It is ah, number three on the list of things bosses hate. Make your boss chase you down and remind you what to do. <laughs> Funny. Yeah, I just sent a follow-up request least- to an assistant today. Oh, and if it were me, if we were making this list, if it were my personal list, it would be, that would be top of the list, which is, I don't want to have to ask you about it later. Like if we agreed it needed to be done on Thursday, like, I don't want to have to ask you where it is Wednesday night. It's like, I want to be able to fire off a request and just, and I have people like that. I work with it. I know if I ask them to do this, it is as good as done. And you think about like, if someone is, they always get it done. They're always getting it done on time. They're always, you know, doing it in a way that is collaborative. Like, wow, this is someone that I want to deputize. This is someone who can speak for me in my stead this is someone I don't have to worry about. And we kind of load these people up with responsibility. Now you might say, well, wait a minute, I can't handle any more responsibility. It's not necessarily load them up with workload, but these are the people we give the most important work to, the most visible assignments to, like the biggest crisis to to solve around, like they become clutch. Yeah. Yeah. And once you do that, you can kind of write your ticket in an organization. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Keith Rabois talks about this in this uh, startup school podcast, which is, is, you know, Sam Altman basically took the entire Y Combinator curriculum and taught it as a class at Stanford and they made it available for free uh, as a podcast. And something I go back to at least once a quarter because it was so gold. And he basically said that, you know, he talked about this whole concept of task relevant maturity, which I'm, I'm sure you've heard that term that came, I think, from Andy Grove. And he said, what you want to do is keep increasing the scope of somebody's responsibility until it until it breaks. And he said, you'll see when mm-hmm. it breaks. And I, that always stayed with me. Uh, and I realized I'd often gone past the point of where it breaks. But, you know, you talk about, you know, I think what you were just talking about, this whole idea uh, of finishing stronger, right? You say that impact players tend to be completion freaks. They stick with things and get the entire job done, even when the job becomes hard and plagued with unforeseen obstacles. You know, there's something that I saw as a pattern with some of our bad hires is that they would come out of the gate strong, like the person who is running a marathon and basically is ahead of everybody in the race. And slowly, everything would start to change. They would start dropping the ball. They would basically not be the person that they were when we hired them. And we just kind of were like, what the hell happened here? Mm. Oh, my goodness. That reminds me of my marathon experience. I was so lame. So lame. Like I trained... And I get out there in the race conditions and I know the pace I'm supposed to maintain, but I'm like feeling good. And I like pick up an extra like minute, like I reduce my mile time by a minute. I'm like doing great. And then I hit about mile 20, you know, and, and I kind of fall apart. And I ended up, I mean, I finished the race and it was only 10 minutes over my estimated time, but I didn't finish strong. And it's because I started out strong, but I hadn't paced myself and I hadn't thought about, okay, what do I do when I'm in hypothermia conditions? And and it is very much the mentality of these impact players is like they are thinking about the whole race. 
And, um, you know, I kind of have a mascot for each one of these five differences that distinguish impact players from contributors. And the mascot for this one is that the Husky Malmute dog. And, you know, I ended up doing a little bit of research on this breed of dogs. And, you know, these are the dogs they use for the sled races, the Iditarod, et cetera, these athlete kind of dogs. And they they can finish a multi-day race with the same vitals that they started it with. In fact, the the sled teams that win a race are often teams that have just finished a multi-day endurance race because they're finishing not exhausted. They're finishing as strong, if not stronger than when they started. And, you know, so it's this mentality of like, okay, if I'm going to be a finisher, I've got to anticipate things that I can't possibly anticipate. And, and so like, what would allow me to make sure that I finish not weakened and exhausted and burnt out, but I finish with maybe even um, a better result than it was expected. Maybe I finish with a team win. Maybe I finish with my reputation even stronger. You know, and, and it forces them to do a lot of upfront planning. It forces them to do some fun negotiating, negotiating for the resources that they're going to need down down the road. Yeah. So the other two that you brought up um, were ask and adjust and make work light. And what you say is that impact players tend to adapt to changing conditions faster than their peers because they interpret new rules and new target op- as opportunities for learning and growth. And, uh, you know, I, I think I, I see this firsthand running a, a you know startup effectively that our world is such that you know planning beyond 90 days doesn't make any sense. And even in that 90 days, things are inevitably going to change. Uh, right. So, you know, how is it that these people do so well in terms of, you know, adapting? Well, my, my um, mascot for this one is the chameleon that, you know, they are moving into a new environment and they're changing themselves as they go. Now, saying that impact players are good learners, like they take feedback and they learn and they adjust and they see opportunities for growth like that's that's cute. But like, there's some subtlety in here that I think is really, really important. The first is that they are constantly, they're not reacting to feedback positively when they get it. They're seeking feedback. And it's as if they, it's like they start the workday with the assumption that, you know, while I was sleeping, you know, in the eight hours that I I, I just was sleeping, like the world shifted, something changed. And if I just keep doing what I've been doing, I'm going to be off target. So the contributor mentality is like lock onto target, stay on target, keep doing what you're doing and look for validation that you're doing it right. And unless someone throws a brick at you, you're doing well. <laughs> yeah. And you know, often in this mode, someone does have to throw a brick at you like Liz, like I have feedback for you, like sit down and listen. So in the impact player mindset, you're like, you know what? No one needs to throw a brick at me because I'm going to wake up assuming that like overnight, so to speak, I've gotten off track, that Uh. things have shifted. And so I'm saying like, what do I need to do differently? When you're submitting a piece of work, it's not like, hey, what went well? It's what, what do I do differently? What do I need to change? So it's this assumption that you're off target rather than you're on target. Kind of like um, 
when a violinist is tuning his instrument. Like, I have to admit, when I was a kid, and and perhaps maybe like well into adulthood, I couldn't quite figure out why the violinists always played bad music before they played good music <laughs> in the performance. Like, Shini, did you figure this out way before I did? Yeah, I mean, I was a musician, so like I played the tuba for almost 13 years. So yeah, I knew that. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, I got kicked out of piano lessons because my teacher said, and I quote, Elizabeth is an incorrigible child. <laughs> I didn't want to learn to play the piano, but I was always like, why do they, why can't they, like, I kind of got that they were tuning their instrument, but I'm like, why don't they do that before they go up onto the stage? Like, do they really need to subject us to that? Is it so that we then appreciate the good music later? And I realized that even just moving your instrument from your seat in the audience up onto the stage is going to change its um, tune. And so they're, fine-tuning things right before they perform. And it's this fine-tuning mentality of like, I'm off track and off tune unless I'm constantly getting myself on tune. And and to do this, they're not like looking for a lot of personal feedback, like how am I doing? In fact, it's kind of one of the things I learned from the manager perspective is, you know, the employees are like, how am I doing, boss? How am I doing? Am I doing great? Can you hear me now? How am I doing now? Like, praise me more. It's exhausting for their leaders. And it's so hard for leaders to give people tons of personal feedback because it's so loaded. Even if you've got like ninja skills and radical candor, it's hard to do anything that feels like you're making a judgment about yeah. a person and even their performance. Like, I don't like it. It's hard to get. It's hard to give. But (laughs) when when you're not asking for feedback on how you are doing and you just want information to help you improve the work, oh, it's so much easier to hear. And it's so much easier for people to give. Like, you know, it's a difference of me giving you a manuscript and saying, what could be done to make this book stronger versus... Do you like my book? Right. No one wants to answer that second question. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny. And I remember reading the section where you know you said you had your friend sort of tell you, "Wow, you can write," and then he brought you to his office and tore you to shreds. Um, I, I remember when I was working with my mentor Greg. This was probably 2014. I'd gone through a bad breakup, and I was just going through a tough time, and I. You know, I like my social media posts were off the deep end. And I remember he called me and just basically ripped me a new asshole. He's like, you're acting like a damn teenager. He was like, you are a public figure. You don't have the luxury of doing this. And I remember this is what he said to me. And it always stayed with me. I said, Greg, yeah, I'm human too. I have problems. He said, yeah, man, you don't get to make that excuse because of the position you're in. And Mm. you know how as hard as that was to hear, I realized what he was doing. And it, it came full circle, you know, almost eight years later. When we raised a round of venture funding, I was like, oh, my God, he is absolutely right. Like he was inc- – and I realized often the people who are toughest on us are the ones who are either the one – they're the ones who care the most and also are the ones who actually give us you know, some of the best feedback. Mm. And it's so much easier to receive when you know – when you have someone who tells you the truth about that, yeah. um, that truly is, it's a rarity and it's a rare gift, but it's so much easier to receive when they're like, they're not, they're not ripping me. They're, they're helping me do better work and just depersonalizing that. And it's strange that 
it's also one of the other things we found with these um, impact players is they didn't over identify with their work. Yeah. Which for me was a little bit hard as I'm looking at this one, because I'm like, ooh, I'm one of these people who sees my work as like a calling, something <laughs> I love doing. Like, I don't care if you pay me. This is this is just what I do. It's me. And then I write books and like, that's really hard to separate your identity. <laughs> yeah, creative work in particular. Yeah. Creative work is really hard because like, like your art is is you and so like you could see my own discomfort with this is we end up doing much more powerful work when we can say this is my work but it is not me it comes through me but it is not me which you know reminds me of just oh one of my favorite lines from the book the prophet by um Cleo Gibran, I think. Yeah, I, okay. I, was get, I always get his first and that last name mixed in my mind. And that it's the chapter on children. And he says, your children don't come from you. They come through you. And then, oh, it's just such beautiful poetry about the relationship between parents and their children and how the parents are like these archers who bend and contort themselves to launch forth their children. But their children, like aren't them. And, and, and I think it's a very similar orientation, which is like, just like my children are unique beings with their own interest and personalities. Like I'm going to allow them to be a separate human being from me. It's like, I'm going to allow my work to be separate from me. It comes through me, but it is not me. Yeah. And just like when we can separate our identity from our children's, then we we can be like we we can avoid being horrible parents, I think is like the, the value proposition there. But when we separate our identity from our work, we can improve our work faster than I think we can change ourselves. Wow. Wow. Uh so I have uh, sort of one. It's hard for a creative to hear. Yeah, no, that is incredibly difficult for creative people to hear. I know this because I I actually tried to coach writers for a bit and I realized I had learned how to give feedback from a woman who didn't sugarcoat feedback. Um, and that was the way I was taught to give feedback because it was just like, yeah, I'm not here to sugarcoat this or make you feel good. I'm here to give you advice that's going to improve this. And I realized like you know, half the time I was like, you don't need me. You need a therapist. I can't solve this problem. Uh, but so one of the things that I wonder, just based on my personal experience of having been fired from every damn job I had, uh, is have you ever seen cases where somebody actually goes from being a contributor or an underperformer to an impact player and, and what happens? And then to bring us sort of full circle to part of the conversation we we're having before we hit record, how much of this is coachable and learnable and how much of this is inherent or innate? Yeah. So I think to answer that question. So yes, I have seen people go from contributor to impact player and it's because these are not really categorizations of people as much as mindsets that were in, in a point in time. So I can, you know, like, for example, one of those people is me. And, you know, that moment where I want to build a management boot camp and the company needs me to teach technology in the technology boot camp, like this is a moment where I'm moving from contributor to impact player. 
Like I'm learning to get beyond myself and not just do my job, but do the job that needs to be done. And as people have been, you know, reading the manuscript in its early state and as the book has just come out, people are saying, I can see times when I was stuck in this contributor mentality. And I can also point to times when I was working in the impact player mentality. And I think that to me is the power of this message is not, hmm, gee, this is an impact player. This is a contributor. But to recognize when we've slipped, you know, and maybe we slip in points of the day, but it probably is larger phases or arcs of our career. And like, how do we get ourselves back? But, you know, if you've been in that impact player state before, getting yourself back is not that hard. It's like, well, how was I approaching things? What was I assuming? What was my orientation to work? Like, it might just be regaining some humility. If it's something that someone has struggled to do, um, then we need to look at like, what are the kinds of skills and capabilities they need to build. And then that begs the larger question of how much of this is really learnable. And towards the end of the the writing process, I realized there was an additional piece of research we needed to do because not all of the mindsets and, and behaviors felt really learnable. We talked with each one of these impact players, like, where did you learn this? And a lot of it came from like, kind of learned it at my mother's knee, or I learned it early in life, or you know, like for me, I learned it from my father, which is like, well, I can either just sort of do what my dad tells me to do, or I can think through situations and decide what I think should be done. And I can make my case for why I should do things differently. And, and I saw, I got positive reinforcement for that. Like, okay, yeah. Like, you know, young Elizabeth, you, you made a good case. And some people don't learn those things early on. Um, There are some things, there's a little chart in the book. It's one of my favorites. It's towards the end. I don't know what page it's on. I'd I'd have to take me a bit to flip through and find it's towards the end. It's in the chapter on build a high impact team. And it takes all of the mindsets and behaviors and stratifies them from the things that seem to be the least coachable and the things that are the most coachable. And simply put, if you want to build a high impact team, or you want a lot of impact players on your team, you know, you want to hire for the things that are the least coachable. And you want to then spend your training dollar or your mentoring investment or your coaching investment on the things that it can be easily learned, like, um, you know, some proactivity, learning to do things before being asked is a fairly learnable thing to do. In some ways, it's just giving people permission. Like, hey, you know what? Even if you do it wrong, I might throw a smile. I remember having to say this to someone who worked for me at Oracle. I'm like, you know what? I want you to just take action and keep moving. If you take action and and you do it wrong, I want to promise you, like some managers would say, I'm going to promise you I won't be upset. I'm like, I'm going to promise you that I will be upset, but I will be upset and I might throw a temper tantrum. It'll be like for five minutes. I might be like, you did that, and then I will get over myself and I will thank you for having done this because I know I'm going to have this inclination. So sometimes it's simply giving people permission to like take charge. Um, I will back you on this. Uh, But there's some things that, you know, you might want to hire for like an internal locus of control, like this sense that I'm in charge of my life. 
like that's one that's a little bit harder to coach or kind of a little bit of an irreverence for hierarchy. Sometimes that can be pretty hardwired into people. Yeah, <laughs> probably me. Um, wow. Uh, well, this has been incredible. I have one last question for you, which I know you've heard me ask you before, and that is, what do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Well, when when we do things that only we can do, I think we do our most brilliant work, like where we really have a unique point of view, um, where there's like a truly an N of one. It's unmistakable. Amazing. Um, well, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and uh, sharing your insights uh, and <clears throat> wisdom with our, our listeners. Where can people find out more about you, your work, and the new book, and everything else you're up to? Oh, I think I'm fairly easy to find. Um, uh, me, our organization, thewisemangroup.com, and it's not wisemangroup.com. That is an interior design firm in San Francisco, which I guarantee you has a more beautiful website than ours. But we are The Wiseman Group. And um, let me see, you can find information about this book at impactplayersbook.com. Uh, you know, it's out there in bookstores and Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all the um, other retailers. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming. Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. 
The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World, and this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.